Welcome to High Impact Growth, a podcast from Demagi about the role of technology in creating a world where everyone has access to the services they need to thrive. I'm Amy Vaccaro, your co-host. In 2020, Demagi entered the U.S. market to serve public health departments on COVID response. At the height of COVID, Demagi's ComCare platform was used to track more than 7% of COVID cases nationally in the U.S., and over 25,000 contact tracers were using ComCare to contain the spread of COVID-19. Today, for the first time, we are peeling back the curtain to share with you why we entered the U.S. market, how we made it happen, and most importantly, what we learned. We'll also share with you seven of the key best practices that we were able to leverage from 20 years of working in global health as we transitioned to working with U.S. public health departments. I'm joined by four of the people most closely involved in making this happen at Demagi. Jonathan Jackson, our CEO and co-host of this podcast, Carter Powers, Managing Director of our U.S. Health Division, which we spun up in response to COVID, Sarah Sagan, Director of Project Delivery for this U.S. Health team, and Lily Olson, Senior Director of Partnerships for the U.S. Health team. I hope you enjoy. All right, welcome. Thank you so much for joining. Today's episode is the fifth in a series where we're looking back at Demagi's 20-year history. This is our 20th anniversary and looking at kind of milestone turning point moments. And so today we're going to tell the story of how Demagi entered the U.S. market. And Demagi, as you've heard from other episodes, you know, we've worked for 20 years all around the world, largely parts of Africa, Asia, some parts of Latin America. We really hadn't worked explicitly in the U.S. until COVID hit. So today we're going to tell the story of entering the U.S. market, what happened, how it went down, what we learned from that, right, as an international focused organization, transferring our, our knowledge and our learnings into the U.S. and where we're going from here. So with that, I want to do quick intros with folks on the call. My name is Sarah Sagan. I'm the director of delivery for the U.S. Health Division. I've been at Demagi for eight years. And there are many reasons I choose to work at Demagi and why Demagi keeps me around. But the top things that come to mind are the constant new challenges that I get the opportunity to work on, as well as the sense of community I've fostered with my colleagues. I'm Lily. I'm the director of partnerships with our U.S. Health Division. I've also been here for eight years. And I stay here because I really do believe in the power of technology to improve public health response. I am Carter Powers, happy to be here. I am the Managing Director of the U.S. Health Division. I've been with Demagi for more than 12 years and was formerly more on the business side working as the COO. The reason that I have stayed with Demagi is that I believe it's the best place for individuals who in their personal life are trying to make impact, team, and profit, which is mantras that I like to live by as an individual. So I have found Demagi the best place that I could focus on projects that are making an impact on the world. Uh, hang out with the team and not take ourselves too seriously and then want to live sustainably. And Damagi has uh, found different ways for me to live that uh, personal mantra as well over time. Wow. So we've got almost like 30 years of Damagi experience just across the three of you. That's really cool. Yeah, it's great to be here with Carter, Lily, and Sarah. I've known all of you for, for quite some time. And I think it's fascinating. These three leaders have all been in different positions and were pulled together to form the U.S. Health Division. Lily was previously in India. Sarah was previously in West Africa. And Carter was previously our COO. And so one of the things that has really been exciting about the form and shape that we've taken in the U.S. market is pulling so much of our global expertise into the U.S. market and seeing how relevant it has been. That's really cool. Yeah, and I think this one of the themes for me from this story is the level of agility that Demagi has shown and being able to kind of create this new team in response to a new need and a new challenge. Set the scene for me. What was what was happening at Demagi when COVID hit? Yeah, so this was a crazy time period for Demagi. For Lily and Sarah, they were on teams that had just reorged heading into 2020. We had been doing huge national scale projects and we were trying to figure out how to both sustain those and grow the business. And we were um, in a pretty stressful time period for the organization heading into 2020 when COVID hit. And so it was really a kind of crazy moment where we knew there was going to be huge, huge need for technology. We'd seen this with Ebola. We'd seen this with Zika. But we also, you know, we're in a pretty high stress, low energy point in the organization's history. And so it took a lot to be in a position to seize the opportunity. But I'd say we were excited for the challenges ahead. We had had a pretty successful reorganization, but we were all pretty tired at this point in early 2020 when COVID was hitting. So what happened? Like, how did we 
decide to support COVID response efforts in the U.S.? We knew the power of ComCare as a platform to support use cases like contact tracing, uh, lab distribution, uh, just basic data systems that we had deployed basically overnight for Ebola and very quickly for Zika as well. And so when COVID hit and it was pretty clear it was going to be a public health emergency in February, we had pulled a team together to create template applications for COVID. So these were simple apps that could be deployed for contact tracing, case investigation, PPBE, protective gear tracking, targeted at the global health market. And so we released these freely available. We started working with lots of countries very quickly in February. And then in early March, March 7th, actually, around Saturday at 1 a.m., we get an email from the CDC um, saying we're being deployed to Santa Clara and we're interested in using ComCare for contact tracing. And so at 6 a.m., I was on the phone with the CDC trying to learn more about what they might be interested in using ComCare for here in the U.S. And we had not been working primarily in the U.S. market up until this point. We'd been really focused on global health overseas. We had done a lot of research in the U.S., but it wasn't with a lot of direct experience in the public health sector here. And so after talking with them, I had assumed there would be better data systems that we could use here in the United States. And the CDC said, no, we're really worried about how adaptive our current systems are. We need something flexible and powerful that can do case investigation and contact tracing. So this is Saturday, March 7th. I call 10 different people on March 8th and start texting everyone. And we have um, Rissa, one of our team members, who's a leader in our U.S. health division, um, deployed with the CDC in Santa Clara on Monday morning. And then we start building an application for contact tracing for COVID. And this was when COVID in the United States was primarily in Boston, Seattle, and Santa Clara. So we deploy the application, build it within 24 hours, start working with them on Tuesday. And by Tuesday, the public health officials are overwhelmed with the number of um, contacts they have to trace. So they have to stop contact tracing. We rebuild the application to do case investigation. And then by Thursday, we couldn't do case investigation anymore because, again, we were overwhelmed. So we're sitting here in Boston. We're supporting multiple countries and lower and middle income settings with their national contact tracing and case investigation. And then we can see what's about to happen in the U.S. Every public health department is not going to have the staffing to do contact tracing or the staffing to do case investigation. And we realize there's a huge, huge need for a platform like what we can offer with ComCare. So we continued to work with Santa Clara trying to deploy that application. And things kind of exploded from there. But it was a, a very difficult process and difficult journey. And around this time, we realized we had to really stand up a dedicated team to be deploying these solutions in the U.S. if we were going to be able to be a good partner to the public health agencies. And that's when Lily and Sarah got pulled in to kind of lead the team to see if we could do this. So we, we get pinged by the CDC. We are there on site two days later building an app for Santa Clara. What does that app do? So the solution that we've developed for the U.S. was similar to the solution that we developed for our international partners. Um, one used WHO protocols for case investigation and contact tracing for COVID-19, and our U.S.-specific solution used CDC protocols. That was the major differentiator at the beginning. So the solution was used by two user types, a case investigator, and that's usually a, a staff member in a public health department that's responsible for letting someone know that they're COVID positive, letting them know that they need to stay home for a certain period of time, and then gathering from them anyone that they might have exposed. The second user type is a contact tracer. That person is responsible for following up with those contacts, getting their contact information, phone number, email, telling them that they've been exposed, giving them instructions to test and quarantine. And then finally, the solution will actually send an automatic text message to those contacts for the entire duration of their quarantine with additional instructions or asking them if they started to be symptomatic uh, and then, you know, encouraging them again to go get tested. That at a high level is what the solution that we delivered is responsible for. I remember that was a time when a lot of agencies were just like scrambling to hire contact tracers. So this is basically the software that they're able to use to follow every case that's reported and try to contain the spread of those cases. Yeah, and when we deployed it originally, as Lily mentioned, this was just prior to when most jurisdictions realized they were going to need to hire an army of contact tracers. So this was when we were still working and the public health officials were doing the contact tracing. And it became very clear that that was going to be impossible. One of the early partnerships we had was with San Francisco that Lily led, where they were 
an early mover on hiring a bunch of external contact tracers using the librarian workforce in the city of San Francisco to support contact tracing. Um, but Lily, Sarah, and I regrouped and we're like, everybody's going to have to do this. There's going to be millions of contact tracers in the U.S. during this time period. I just want to add a, a bit more of what it felt like during that time and how much uncertainty there was just with COVID in general. Now that COVID has been here for more than two and a half years, it's hard to remember how much uncertainty there was in the early phase. At times there was not yet mass guidance and there was uncertainty about whether it would spread over air. It was uncertain if you should be spraying all of your mail down, if it could be passed through transmission. So a lot of this was really figuring things out in a very uncertain situation where a lot of the facts that we know today didn't exist. Yeah, that's right. And one of the things that marked this period at the start is how this work was just really all consuming. And of course, like I would not claim that I was a frontline worker by any means in the way that, you know, people in, in hospitals, grocery stores were truly the frontline workers supporting pandemic response. But we had this seat of having our lives totally absorbed in our personal lives, the uncertainty of COVID response, our lives being turned upside down, trying to figure out how we navigate this world with elderly relatives or loved ones who might have disabilities. What does that look like for them? How do we deal with vulnerable populations that we care about in our personal lives? And then also trying to figure out how to navigate that professionally when there's so much uncertainty that we're seeing from, frankly, government stakeholders themselves about what pandemic response looks like. And so the duality of that at times, and still can remain, though significantly less so, totally overwhelming and all-consuming. And yet, what I saw from the team was just this commitment to push the work forward and recognition of this greater cause we needed to serve of developing an application and a robust piece of software to support pandemic response. And that's something that I think really marked a lot of those first really six months of, of our work. And now during this period myself, we were just having my second daughter in the first week of April. So when I left and I was sort of aware that John and Lily and Sarah were jumping in on this work, I then took paternity leave for three weeks right as the pandemic was getting started. And I came back and it felt like a totally different company and a totally different level of energy seeing everyone deployed. And it was sort of addicting where you were like, well, there's so much energy. We need to like keep finding out the ways that we, we can drive our support forward. At the same time, it's also very... It, it was a privilege to be able to feel like you were able to contribute back to the pandemic. Yeah, I, I remember that time vividly. I wasn't at Demagi at the time, but just was such a such a scary time. And really knowing that like you could pour your heart and soul into your work and that would actually help in some way to curb the impact of this this new pandemic. So I think I, at the basics of the, the app that we rolled out in Santa Clara, the feeling at Demagi of kind of rallying around this. What, what happened next in terms of the growth within the U.S. market? Yeah, so we deployed the application in Santa Clara, and actually we couldn't get the lab data into our system quickly enough. So for contact tracing to work, you need to, to know your positive quickly, and then you need to reach out to all your contacts to tell them they might have been exposed so they can break the chain, right? So the idea of contact tracing is that I expose Sarah. Sarah now knows that, and she doesn't go hang out with Lillian Carter, and therefore Lillian Carter don't get it. But if I don't, tell Sarah, you know, within 48 hours that I'm positive, it's a, it's a problem. And so in Santa Clara, unfortunately, we could not figure out a way to get the lab data into our system fast enough. And so we had kind of agreed with Santa Clara, we need to put this on pause until we come up with a solution to this problem, because it doesn't make sense from an epidemiological standpoint. And that's when Lily started talking with San Francisco, who did have a real-time lab feed. So as positive cases, positive lab results came into the system, we could immediately start reaching out and doing contact tracing. And so we worked with the city of San Francisco and their Department of Public Health to deploy ComCare for several hundred contact tracers. And that did two things. One is it kind of exposed us to what be, would become the predominant public health response model, which was hiring hundreds of contact tracers and deploying them at scale centrally within a state or a city. And two, gave us more confidence that our solution was really a good fit for the market. You know, we built it with Santa Clara, but we had been customizing that overnight and totally switching the application every night. And when we moved to San Francisco, we're like, okay, this looks pretty stable. And then I remember like overnight, Lily, I don't remember, you know, how early on it was to Santa Clara and San Francisco, but we just started getting inbound requests left and right. You know, it just seemed like everybody in the United States had realized they needed a case investigation and contact tracing solution. 
And that's when we um, pulled together and we're like, okay, if we're, if we're doing this, Lily, you need to like stop your day job. And Sarah, you need to stop your day job. And like, this is all we're focused on and not just YouTube, but like 10 other people. And so we kind of had an internal meeting where we just said, look, this is the moment we got to step up and see if we can support the U.S. response. Not by giving up on global health by any means. We had a whole dedicated team for that as well, but by really trying to pull resources together in team. And then we stepped up extremely quickly as well. But that was like a huge go. And I think Lily and I probably had 50 phone calls, you know, over the course of April, trying to figure out which states we could support. And fortunately, we were able to support many um, in their response. Yeah. What I see as a turning point for us was our, in our engagement with San Francisco, they released a press release and the mayor did a news conference about their uh, decision to develop a solution for case investigation and contact tracing and their decision to hire all these contact tracers. And it was a statement about the seriousness of COVID-19 made by one of the most prominent local governments in the country. The snowball effect of interest in Comcare really followed that news day. That became national news, that selection of Comcare and that investment in COVID-19 response. And then, as John mentioned, we just could not keep up with the, the demand to learn more about what we built with San Francisco County. The first state that we heard from was Alaska. Alaska uh, was another, um, you know, really early investor in COVID-19 response. After Alaska, uh, as, as John said, we were on the phone with different state governments and different local counties for, it felt like weeks. I recently looked back at our timeline. It was about four days, <laughs> uh, but we had, you know, maybe 30 conversations hopping around the country, uh, speaking to different state governments. New York State was the next major uh, partner to decide to work with Demandi and Comcare. And that was, uh, again, a, a real testament to the appropriateness of our solution for the moment. New York State is an enormous state. You know, they were being really hard hit by COVID-19 early in the pandemic. And so their sort of stamp of, of approval for the COVID-19 solution that we developed amplified that interest in, in our solution. After New York State, New Jersey State decided to use Comcare, followed by Philadelphia, um, the Navajo Nation, and then finally, the state of Colorado. All in all, we had four states and initially four local governments actively using Comcare for COVID-19 response. And Sarah, can you talk a little bit about the timeline of what a project looked like? I think we're, we're almost underselling how quickly these complicated systems went live on what timeline. Yeah, absolutely. So I can speak to this regarding in the New York specific context. So. I, on April 30th, received a Skype message. At the time, Demaki used Skype. Thank goodness. We've since moved to Slack. From my then boss, Courtney, that said, hey, someone's going to talk to you tomorrow. Just a couple things we need to go over with you. Uh, nothing to worry about. So I was like, right, it's not ominous, hopefully. Um, and then was basically told, drop everything that you're doing. Um, you are going to be leading this project with New York. Uh, and that, so May 1st, I got on my first call with New York and then we hit the ground running and we deployed to 57 counties in New York state by early June, we were at full scale and full scale there not only includes the application. So that case investigation, that contact tracing workforce management component, but also a data pipeline, right? Like one of the key gaps we saw was this need to ingest lab data. So get lab data quickly into the system. Time was of the essence. We need to notify contacts quickly and we need to inform cases to isolate. Um, so cases, isolate, contacts, quarantine. But we need to get that information out as soon as possible. So we went from no solution to a fully deployed at scale solution in less than six weeks. And all of that is really a testament to the power of a technology platform. One of the things that we found uh, throughout our engagement in the U.S. 
is that there is often a desire for a truly custom-built solution. So a really personalized, detailed solution to fit a, a bespoke need or very specific use case. That Those are great and have and do have benefits, but it is highly unlikely, if not nearly impossible, to imagine something like that being able to be stood up in such a short time frame to support such a robust need. So really what Demagi was able to do is build on all of the work that our international teams have been doing for years, the power of decades of technology being developed to take ComCare and make that a reality to serve an enormous thousands plus workforce in a state that was also really nationally being regarded as the center or the focal point of pandemic response in the U.S. So it was it was a journey. So Sarah and Lily, I want to hear from you, what was this time like? Like, obviously, you were doing incredible work, moving so fast. Um, I want to hear kind of your reflections on what that that time was like. It was crazy. It's really crazy. I have never worked so hard in my entire life. I have a, a strong memory of taking a break by sweeping. I swept the floor of my house and I was like, man, this is great. <laughs> this is really fun. But in the background, I still had a county government conference call going on. It was a Saturday and one of our county partners was, you know, just just connecting and talking about their response. There were no breaks, really, in those days. There were no hours that were off hours. You know, we followed the lead of our state and local partners and our state and local partners were always working. So it was a really crazy time. It was a very inspiring time. I felt really patriotic. I felt really proud of my government. I felt really lucky to have the curtain lifted on my healthcare system and the way that state and local government contribute to healthcare in the United States. As Sarah mentioned, we had a front row seat to what was a really devastating and also a really important moment in U.S. history. And that was very inspirational and will remain something that I'm proud of for the rest of my life. It really was a, a singular time. And I have such pride in being able to serve public health in the U.S. in the way, in this in the small contribution that I was able to make and in the team that we worked with. It was really tough. I mean, we mentioned, of course, like the the personal challenge of balancing the personal and the professional. Um, I remember, I think it was in July. So this is maybe a month and a half after this work really, the work was scaling up throughout the U.S. I realized it was the first time I had gone a, a week without crying. And that, and I, and just to like put more of a finer point on it, I'm, I don't cry super easily. I had not, I think I cried once in my previous seven years or six years at Damagi. Um, so, and I was crying almost daily from exhaustion, stress. I mean, everyone was at their breaking point, the, the people we were working with in state governments. And it was not, it was really taxing. If I felt horrible as a leader, right? Like asking so much of my team, I was, I was feeling like I was getting rung dry. I felt like I was wringing people dry in what I was asking of them. And that, that makes you feel horrible. And we had no idea what the end was, what the end looks like. We hired folks, some of whom were going through such personal strife. We hired someone who's had a grandparent who passed away in a New York nursing home. You know, I mean, there was a lot, it was a lot of heaviness. So it was both like you felt so called to the moment, but also in equal measure, really just didn't know if you were making the right choices in the way you were conducting yourself as a leader and the decisions you were making. And that really weighed on me then. I think in many ways when I reflect on it, it still does just because of the immensity of what that led to and of, of what that moment felt like. I can only imagine just how how hard that was, Sarah and, and Lily. So I, I appreciate you you sharing. And and I think certainly I remember we we would be scheduling calls with each other at 8, 9, 10 p.m. without thinking twice. I mean, they're just not even checking if people are available. Like, we just knew we were going to have to go that late. Um, and we were on the phone with our partners all day. And to stress what Lily and Sarah both mentioned, like, we were working extremely hard, but it was unfathomable how hard our partners of the public health agencies had to work. I mean, it was 
just, you were double booked all day. You know, we just knew they would have another conference call going on whenever we need to reach out to them. And part of what Sarah mentioned is that level of stress completely burned out the American public health workforce as well. I mean, if you look at what's happening with attrition right now and recovering from this is going to take us some time. It's going to take the public health workforce some time, but you know, we talk about impact team profit here at Damagi, and this was a chance to have a huge impact and it definitely had to be put above team because we were working crazy hours, but that's, you know, our stated priorities and it's something we're really proud of, but it was certainly unsustainable. Like we knew full well, we couldn't keep this pace up and definitely we're trying to really figure out how are we going to stabilize the team, um, and, and our partnerships to be successful while not making it the case that everybody had to quit. And I do think we did get to that point, right? Like, you know, when I, when we talk about the early craziness, so to speak, of what response of what Demagi's response to the to COVID-19 pandemic was like, it was everything that that I spoke to. It, it was that that turmoil, the, the feeling of being wrung dry, the uncertainty, the dealing with people who were on the brink of collapse or just from the sheer stress and exhaustion they were feeling at the public health level. But we made a very concerted effort by starting in September, and I would say would really with an earnest by October, to change that mentality. We knew very quickly that once the summer months were winding down, we could not continue this pace of the organization. It was out, it was out of line with our values. We could not continue to deliver and be successful in the way in which we were pushing our team and pushing ourselves. So we brought in more staffing. We brought in more resources. We set better boundaries, frankly, with some of our partners with times that we were able to be online or offline. We encouraged folks to take more time off. We um, had like blackout dates for when we wouldn't be available for, you know, emer- for support except for emergencies. We set better escalation pathways. Like we started to bring in all of the things that Demagi has always done with many of our other partners and workforces that we set aside in the um, given the call to action required for the pandemic. And I, I don't think that was the wrong choice to make, but the trade off and the the yeah the trade off that it was it was still there. Carter, I want to ask you like how did how did you think about as a leader right? How did you go about transitioning the team from this really intense heads down period that's you know quite frankly unsustainable to a more sustainable place? Yeah, we talked earlier about how rapidly we uh, started delivering these projects, and part of the pain that we we felt during this period was we rapidly needed to build a team and build a team structure that could sustain and support these projects with the level of work that they needed. Uh, so during this period, we started with a group of internal team members of about ten working with Lily and Sarah to deliver these projects, and quickly by the end of the year, we were already up to thirty people and very quickly had, had more than doubled. Uh, today, we're more than fifty people uh, as a division. So we fortunately have put a lot of the right structures in place with our technology team, our delivery team, our partnerships team, and our operations team, sort of providing the support structures. This period also internally became uh, referred to as wartime, and we made a really intense effort to sort of acknowledge that this was unsustainable and to put a, the team on a path where we felt like we had more steady state structures. And I'm happy that today we, we have a sort of fully fledged division and, and we're going after additional areas that we can make big impact in the U.S. public health market. I feel like we've, we've done a really good job of, of walking through kind of what happened, how we entered the market. What are some of the learnings that we had from this period? Why does, why does this matter? I think organizationally, one of the big learnings or takeaways, obviously the, the counterfactual is impossible to know, but as Carter mentioned earlier on in this episode, we had just done a lot of work to restructure the organization and our new structure that we were entering 2020 with really allowed us to be able to pull this team together rapidly and deploy them without kind of breaking everything else we were doing and supporting all of our partners globally. And I think that while it felt like we'd just done all this work planning and then immediately threw it out the window and and kind of went all hands on deck, which in some ways we did do, we were only able to pull all those hands together because of the planning we had done. And so I think in some ways, um, one of the Things that I think you look at a big corporation who spent a lot of time in strategic planning and, and doing all these things. Um, what's the value of it? And we were certainly of that mindset as a smaller organization. And as we've grown, that planning didn't enable us to necessarily execute the plan that we have set out, but it did prepare our structures and our team to be agile and in a place where we could really seize on the opportunity ahead of us. And it's something we've seen already again in the U.S. health market 
where Lily was able to pull together the team. Sarah was able to go deliver a solution again, season on the opportunity in front of us. And it wasn't necessarily what we thought it was going to be, but that planning and diligence and transparency that we had across the organization put us in a position so that we could go after this urgent response that obviously nobody had planned for. One of the things that's so interesting about this story is that Damagi had been around for almost 20 years working internationally. And when we entered the U.S. market, you were able to put all of those learnings from those decades of work into the work in the U.S. Back in January, you shared on a webinar with the Linux Foundation seven learnings that you brought from all of that global work that you were able to bring to bear for this U.S. public health response. And I'd love to walk through those for the audience here. So the first learning is that paper is inescapable. One of our surprises, one of the things that surprised us as we began working with local and state government is that some of them were using paper to organize their public health response. We did work with a couple county governments that were using sticky notes in the early days of the pandemic to track positive cases and contacts. Paper-based approaches to public health response are really common in the low and middle-income countries where Demagi has worked for the past 20 years. We were pretty surprised to see paper-based responses here in the U.S., even in those early days of pandemic. We've learned of other use cases in the U.S. that are still reliant on paper-based approaches. I found it very meaningful, especially because the U.S. has such a saturated tech market, because there's a lot of discussion of really advanced technologies for public health, like machine learning and artificial intelligence. It was a, a confirmation for me that there is still work to be done to shore up the very foundation of our health IT in the United States. The second learning you shared is that better tools lead to usage, which lead to better data. Can you say more about that? Another theme from our work in the U.S., which echoes essentially our thesis abroad, is that building better tools actually leads to use of those tools, which results in much better data. Reflecting on our experience, it occurred to me that what a donor is to an international government or an INGO, state government can be to local government. Donors and state governments have different mandate than their recipient or local governments with an emphasis on data and reporting. Donors can't force international governments to use the tooling they pay for, and states can't always mandate that local governments use the tooling they pay for. As such, the tooling actually needs to be good to keep users on board. This requires user-centered design and, again, is the premise of our work, we built a platform that enables rapid iteration and response to user feedback. User-centered design results in better tools and adoption, which ends up producing these really strong data sets, which are what some of these state governments and donors really need to guide their decision making. That brings us to the third learning, which is that platforms help you move fast. Can you say more about that? Yeah, so one of the... The third learning we had was really about the power of the platform as a, as a technology stack or technology approach here. In the U.S., what we found is that it was much more common in many instances for there to be a desire for custom builds or more specialized features. So a, a solution or a technology solution very des designed for a very specific context or, or state or, or partner, whatever the, the end user may be. But the consequence is that a, uh, a customized solution is hard to develop in a very quick, urgent response context. And that's where the platform really came in as a, a conducive tool or mechanism to stand up and develop a solution very quickly. Again, that six-week timeline for one of our state partners 
is not imaginable when you're designing something from the beginning. We had a platform to build on. And yes, there was a lot of design and iteration on the application from its initial stance to where it is today. But the fact that we're able to stand up a working design and prototype is really a testament to the power of a platform. Um, and in the way that our platform is designed, it gives a feel of aspects of custom software because we have this ability to use whether it's icons or word choices that really do feel specialized to the uh, state or local partner that we're working with. But still, again, the power to get it deployed and in the hands of users at a much faster pace. The fourth learning is that design must subsidize training. Internationally, we build tools that cater to users with mixed levels of training and expertise. A typical ComCare user, like a community health worker, can receive minimal training or irregular training despite their public health mandate. Short-term contact tracers in the United States faced the same predicament. They were hired out of their communities. They were volunteers. They maybe had never done work in public health before, but they had this incredible mandate at the front lines of pandemic response. Designing for this type of workforce goes beyond building an easy-to-use interface. Our design needed to guide users through complex workflows with scripting, with advice and decision support validated by leading experts or entities like the CDC. And this was especially important during COVID as we saw public health guidelines change quickly. So the fifth learning was to look abroad for expertise. Carter, do you wanna elaborate on that one? So this was really crucial and built on our experience. Uh, so internationally, many countries have struggled with public health challenges uh, that the U.S. has. Uh, and often there are new challenges in the U.S. where we don't have modern experience with them. So for example, as we talked about earlier, as a result of our work with Ebola many years ago, Demagi had a lot of domain knowledge about how tech for contact tracing should actually work. As the U.S. public health system continues to rebuild, we can be looking more abroad for additional expertise and bringing in other tools from outside the U.S. when they're better fits for some of the areas that come up. And that brings us to the sixth learning that you had shifting from global health to U.S. public health response, which was that flexible APIs are a must. So APIs stand for application programming interfaces and is the way to send data between two systems. Comcare and Demagi have very flexible a APIs. When we started working in the U.S. market, we thought it would be much easier to do integrations in the U.S. We anticipated that there were higher quality systems, increased standardization with things like HL7 or FHIR, and that these standards existed that we could hook into. But that was not the reality that bore out uh, on the ground. Most of the places we work with in the U.S. are still using bespoke systems. So us having flexible APIs is really crucial uh, to be able to meet our partners where they are. So luckily, we, we've had very flexible APIs as an area we continue to build out, but we continue to be pushing for uh, flexible uh, APIs and, and more standardized uh, approaches even in the U.S. public health system. Thanks, Carter. And that brings us to the seventh and final learning that you shared, which was that open source rules. Can you tell me more about that one? So this is a, a very common thing you will hear about Tamagi. We uh, have embraced the concept of being open and transparent, uh, both in our technology as well as many aspects of the company. Uh, so Comcare's open source code base is the product of hundreds of different projects that we've done globally across, across the world and responding to everything from Ebola to Zika and other endemic diseases, even things like malaria. So the power of open source and the reuse that come with that really is a powerful learning. Overall, our code base is robust and well-maintained in our open source repositories, uh, and it's really powerful and important for our platform app builders to be able to respond to new problems as quickly and rapidly as they're able to, uh, because we have so much transparency and collaboration in our open source approach. Awesome. Thank you so much. That is a really fascinating kind of seven insights from transitioning our work from, from globally to, to the U.S. So I want to talk a little bit about where, what's next for this team, right? So Demagi really rallied. We pulled together this incredible team. You've heard from three of the folks on the ground or really four of the folks on the ground. 
Where is this U.S. health division headed next? Yeah, at this point, we are about a 50-person team. We continue to support the state and local governments that adopted our solution for COVID-19 response to this day. At the same time in the past year, we have had a moment to step back from COVID-19 and ask ourselves where else we might be able to make a difference in the United States. One of the places that we found we could make a difference was actually in behavioral health response. In the same way that our platform was quickly configured to respond to COVID-19, uh, a state government has decided uh, and has progressed in configuring ComCare for um, behavioral health response, um, including developing assessment to assess someone's behavioral health support requirements, including tracking availability of beds across behavioral health facilities, um, and down the line, potentially supporting referrals within a state to make sure that people access the behavioral health, mental health, substance use services that they require. We are thrilled to once again see this sort of confirmation that ComCare can be helpful here in the U.S., where there are so many other solutions available. And as we did with COVID, we hope to take a solution that we develop with one partner and make it available to others. Um, with some localization, we hope that a similar solution could serve other state governments, could serve other local governments that are working in behavioral health. Another place that we have begun to work in the past couple months is on monkeypox response. So monkeypox over this summer of 2022 has emerged as a public health emergency and an infectious disease for which some of that same case investigation and contact tracing capabilities that we utilized for COVID-19 response are really valuable. So my team, as we did with COVID-19, has decided to build and release a free monkeypox case investigation and contact tracing solution to any public health department across the U.S. that wants to use it. That solution is out now. And if your public health department is involved in monkeypox response, please reach out to us and we will set you up with that solution at no cost. We really just want to be part of curbing this spread as quickly as we can. Yeah, when I think about what's next or what's ahead for us, it's building on a lot of the things that have brought us success to date. So we do not sort of see COVID as the main focus of the division. As Lily said, we have sort of shifted to other ways that we can support public health. Uh, so I, I'm very excited about the behavioral health areas that we're building out. And we're really excited to continue to find ways to work with our public health partners. One thing that is pretty unique about Tamagi's culture is that we've been working in global health, public health for the last 20 years, and we plan to be working primarily focused in public health uh, for the next 20 years. So even though there's been a lot of changes in the market, we're really seeing synergies where we think we fit really well and can grow with public health in the U.S. So we are not going anywhere and, and looking for additional ways that we can support additional uh, technology-enabled areas with public health partners. And I'll just add all the things that we're so proud to do to support public health response in the U.S. and to maybe give a brief glimpse of what we're thinking about internally. We're really looking to invest in our team even more. You know, I mentioned that perhaps we took a, a bit of a team hit at the start of, of pandemic response and thinking about how just given that we had to really rally behind the call to action of the moment. It's been wonderful watching us promote team members, create new rules, tackle new aspects of technology, like bringing on a data and analytics team and workforce behind it. So we're just so proud to continue to stretch and grow our team to both be commensurate with the needs of public health in the United States, but also the desires for our own teammates to make sure we're continuing to cultivate their own interests and ultimately retain the best individuals that make Demagi this, the type of community that we hope to foster. I'm curious, like what what makes Demagi different from other health technology companies that are in the U.S.? Yeah, I think this was a really interesting learning for 
Sarah Lillian Carter and I early on, we are truly mission-driven with our focus on impact team profit, but also very sophisticated in our belief of how technology can make a massive investment and improvement in public health response. And I think the combination of the fact that we are a social enterprise and have scaled and worked with many governments across the world and have sophisticated internal financial systems and procurement coupled with the ability for us to get on a plane, be there on the ground the next day and have 10 years of public health expertise at your doorstep was really unique. I don't think there are a lot of companies in any market or the U.S. market specifically that have such a big horizontal platform like we do with Comcare and such a strong professional services team that has done so much work in public health and has a lot of expertise and literally done contact tracing before. The amount of partnership and joint problem solving we're able to do with our clients, I think is really unique. And one of our core tenants that we talk about is being a partner, not a vendor. You know, we really look for organizations and public health agencies that are looking for a partner, not just a vendor who can deliver technology, because there's lots of those types of firms out there. We like to think of ourselves as the ones you can go to to really create a true partnership over a multi-year period. And we've been really successful, I think, so far in supporting our partners and, you know, expect and hope to continue to be going forward. I think the other thing, obviously, is our cost benefit. Um, you know, we are a social enterprise and we're trying to maximize our impact, not our profit margin. So we also um, saw that we were extremely cost-effective in COVID response and anticipate as Lily and Sarah and Carter determine what use cases we're going to really double down on over time. We hope to be the most cost-effective solution in those markets as well. And I think we have a great chance of doing that. One of the things Lily and I reflected a lot on early on, because we had worked together for years in global health and selling to governments of all different types and working with donors of all different types, was just how similar a lot of the problems felt from a bureaucratic standpoint and from a money standpoint in terms of how line items made it impossible to do certain things or the way contracts were structured. And it's easy to to sit back and say, oh, the government doesn't work or why can't the government be more cost effective when you're not in the space and not working directly with governments. But when you're working with people who are working, you know, 18 hours a day for six months on end, and you see how hard it is to to just you know, do everything you need to do to, to buy software and to hire training and to pay people, you really gain a lot of empathy for understanding why some of these things just that seem like they should be a lot easier are so difficult. And I'm really proud of our approach and our team and our partners for figuring out ways through that. But it is you know, frustrating for me at times to hear people's negative attitudes towards public health and towards certain agencies from people who just don't understand all the complexity that people need to follow to make sure you're handling tax dollars appropriately. And that's something that was really interesting because it was, it felt so similar to what we had faced in our international markets as well. Awesome. Lily, Sarah Carter, any other things you want to add to that? One thing I was wanted to add is related to what we're bringing back to global debunking and to global health. We've talked a lot about how it was great to see sort of things that we had worked then applied in the U.S. One area that I'm really excited about is how much I think we're contributing to where Comcare, the technology is going globally and how complementary the work in the U.S. has been to sort of build out the future vision and the power of Comcare globally. Uh, so one of the some of the key areas that we built on the platform are like web applications and web app use cases. And it was really powerful to be able to bring that now to Global Demagi. So as we go from here, I think we're equally interested in, in sort of the shared learnings between what we're doing in U.S. public health and bringing them out sort of bi-directionally uh, in both directions. So that's something that makes me really excited about the work that we're doing and how it can be synergistic. One thing that I'll mention that we've heard from our partners is that they can tell that our team really cares about the work that we are supporting. And this is a real testament to the team that Sarah oversees, the team that delivers these projects. People come and work at Demagi because they care about improving public health. And when that's your partner as a public health official, that's really powerful. And that can be unusual. Public health officials in the United States rely on a vendor ecosystem. That's the way that a lot of public health work gets done. And there's a lot of vendors that don't necessarily have that makeup in their staff. There's a lot of vendors that, that do, but there's a lot that don't. And we've heard that it's really refreshing to get to work with members of Sarah's team 
um, who ultimately care about the project's success a lot more than they care about any sort of individual thing that they're responsible for. Um, that type of partnership, that partner, not vendor, which Joan alluded to, um, we've heard again and again from our state and local government partners is really meaningful and, and really unusual. Thanks so much, Lily, for sharing that. It's certainly something that I, I hope the delivery team is cultivating. And I think also really speaks to the ethos of Demagi as an organization. You know, in, in the U.S. health and in the U.S. healthcare technology space, partner, not a vendor, is something that, you know, folks have really rallied behind and has uh, been a really wonderful message to espouse, but I think really speaks to the years of tradition, culture, and community that Demagi has cultivated in many other parts of the world. So it's it's a real joy to be able to bring that to our work in the U.S., and I look forward to continuing to espouse that type of mentality with our partners for years to come in a variety of sectors. Um, so very excited to continue that work. Thank you so much to Lily Olson, Carter Powers, Sarah Sagan, and of course, Jonathan Jackson for joining us to tell this story. Having joined Demagi after this team had already spun up, this episode gave me such an incredible perspective on the heroic efforts this team led to rise to the moment of COVID-19 and support U.S. public health response. There's a lot I took away from this conversation, but I'll emphasize a couple of key takeaways. So first, leading through COVID was hard. We gained a lot of respect for public health agencies across the U.S. and of course globally, and the incredible effort they put into taking us through COVID. It was an honor to work alongside them to meet this moment. And we're looking forward to continuing to support public health in the U.S. for the decades to come. Second, this story is one of responding to the need and working around the clock to do so. I took away that after a time of huge effort like this one, it's really important to regroup and take thoughtful steps to bring the team back into a more sustainable equilibrium state. You can't be all out sprinting all the time. Third, good planning helps you be prepared to tackle unseen new challenges like COVID. Demangi's level of agility and flexibility allowed us to really step into this moment. Fourth, even though every market is unique, there are many similarities between challenges faced in global health, serving low and middle income countries, and the US. And Demangi's experience globally positioned us well to serve the US as a partner, not a vendor. Thank you so much. That's our show. Please rate, follow, subscribe. And if you really enjoyed this episode, we'd be so grateful if you'd share it with someone you think might find value and learning from our experience. And you can also email us at podcast at with any questions or feedback. Thanks.